Well, good morning again, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is really delightful to be able to connect and be gathered together, uh, even in these ways uh, that um, maybe felt very strange to us before, maybe feeling more comfortable, uh, maybe feeling all over the place. But the, the reality is, is we are united together in Christ, um, who, uh, yeah, so it's, it's really good. So thank you for taking time and space to be here. We do want to let you know, even though there are multiple ways for you to connect, and we want you to find the one that works best for you, we do have one that's got lots of extra goodies and tricks in it. Uh, and so there's a Bible tab, there's a chat line, there's all kinds of stuff. You get these moments, you can click on things. It's just fantastic. So if that is uh, helpful for you, please uh, make sure you get to that space and you can uh, enjoy it there. But we're glad you're able to be with us anyway uh, you can. So thanks again. Uh, let's take a moment and pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this day, uh, for your presence in our lives. God, uh, we are just thankful that, that in the midst of so many things changing, uh, and even when we read that, that your mercies are new every morning, we know that you, um, you stay the same. Um, and you lead us into our discovery of who that is uh, each day. And so, so we pray that we would find you very present in these times. Um, and just as we, we sang, may, may your voice be clear to us uh, in all the things we're doing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as Rich mentioned, we are in week five of a sermon series entitled Stories of Old, where we've been investigating some moments, some, some encounters uh, in the Old Testament, um, stories that happened that we have that are before the time of Jesus. And so in those stories, we've been looking for the different ways that people have uh, connected to God. What are they found in, in these moments and in these relationships um, and, and it's been really fantastic. So, but particularly interesting to me throughout this series has been um, <clears throat> how something has stirred in me about God's promises. Rich preached on this and that uh, God's promises endure um, in the face of, of our ability to kind of mess with things. Um, that, that, that whether we're right on track or we're completely off track, God is bringing to fulfillment the things that God has promised. And that's very exciting. Um, and, and so we've seen it be true in all of these Old Testament stories we looked at, and I think we'll see it to be true uh, again today. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading 1 through 27. But before we do that, <clears throat> I want to give you some quick context um, and, and for some of us, uh, books like First and Second Kings, Chronicles, some of these things were like, oh yeah, I've heard those. We may not exactly remember what they are, so I just want to get us kind of quickly on the same page. Um, First and Second Kings, we, we read it as two separate uh, pieces of literature. Used to be way long time ago, they were combined into one. Um, <clears throat> and it takes place after uh, King David has united uh, all the tribes of Israel, and, um, and from out of King David's line, God promises that he is going to raise up this messianic king, one who's going to establish God's kingdom and fulfill all the promises that God made to Abraham, the ones about your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and will be a blessing to all nations. And so the book of Kings then, what we have is First and Second Kings, is this account of this long line of Davidic kings, uh, some 
okay, some not so great, but none of them fulfilled uh, those, those ideals. And, and there's really five kind of movements in uh, these two books. Um, the first and the last one uh, are all about Jerusalem. And, and, and the first one, it's about Solomon building uh, the, the temple and his reign. Um, and then it ends, the fifth movement is the destruction of the temple and the exile in Babylon. And so it's got this process that it moves through about the building of the temple of Jerusalem, building of this uh, Davidic line of kings, and then the, the exile in Babylon and the destruction of that. The, the in-between three sections, uh, the first of them is, is sort of going through how Israel broke into two kingdoms, um, and you had one in the north and one in the south, uh, and, and how that happened. And then the third section is kind of God trying to prevent the corruption of Israel through this group of people called the prophets, and we're going to explore that in just a second. And then the last of the in-between sections is that uh, the realization that exile is becoming an unavoidable consequence of Israel's continual uh, sin and, uh, and breaking of the covenant that, that God had made with them. Our section um, is in, again, 2 Kings 5, and it falls in this very middle section, which is, goes from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 8, uh, which is, again, that part about God trying to prevent uh, the corruption of Israel through this group of people called the prophets. And so the way it works is um, each kingdom during this time had about 20 kings, um, and, and they were rated by our author, sort of a king rating scale. Uh, they were rated on, did they worship the God of Israel alone? Uh, how did they deal with idolatry within the kingdom of Israel? Did they get rid of it? And were they faithful to the covenant that God had made, or were they corrupt and unjust? And in the north, there are no good kings, all 20 bad kings. And in the south, there are eight good kings and 12 bad kings. <clears throat> but it's into the midst of that then that these prophets come, and they are key figures uh, in, in this time. And they're not um, last times we think of prophets as maybe more like fortune tellers or, or future predictors kind of people, but, but that's not exactly the role they had. Instead, they were a group of people who spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they acted sort of as covenant watchdogs where they would call out idolatry that they saw um, and injustice by the king and the people. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the Torah, the first five books of, of what we have as the Old Testament, were present and a priority for both the king and the people. Uh, and they were constantly reminding everyone that they needed to be a light to the nations. And so uh, in all that, they constantly found themselves in these tension as kings sort of, some moved towards it, but lots of them didn't move towards any of that. And so the prophets were really working to try to get the kings and the people back in line and back on track with God. And so there was a lot of, you need to repent and turn from the things you're doing and turn to God and follow God. Now each king, with each king, God raised up prophets to hold them accountable. Um, and the most prominent in the north are uh, Elijah and his disciple Elisha. So these are two of the sort of heavy hitter prophets. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and, and that's the, that is to lead us all to the section we're looking at today. And this is 2 Kings 5, 1 through 27. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up and read along there. You can click that Bible tab in our online platform, uh, or you can follow along as I read the, the verses will be up on the screen. And so this is 2 Kings 5, 1 through 27. 
Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said, and by all means, go. The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would, not, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace. Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. 
By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. And he urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elijah asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elijah's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. There's a, a so much happening in these, uh, this section of Scripture. Um, we're introduced to three main characters. The first is this character named Naaman. And we know that Naaman is a commander in the Syrian army under King Aram. He is great in the sight of his master. He is highly regarded, it says. He's a valiant soldier, and then it says, but he has leprosy. Now, leprosy is not necessarily the same condition we might think of when we think of leprosy as it's been uh, experienced uh, in modern times. But it, it did have this, it could be life-threatening, um, and it uh, had a huge social stigma attached to it. And uh, you were seen as unclean, uh, and the main way of dealing with it was isolation and exclusion. Um, and, and so it's even amazing that we find out in, in just a moment about Naaman that he, uh, he has a wife that he is married. Um, but we do also know that God is present in Naaman's life because we hear it is by the Lord that he has achieved the victories and, and the things that he has done. Now we also find out that in Naaman's household, uh, there is a young Israelite girl who had been taken captive by a group of Aramite soldiers uh, who had... Uh, gone out on a raid and captured her and so she is serving as a slave in Naaman's house and one day she says to Naaman's wife if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and she means Elisha and if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy and so Naaman hears of this and goes to his king and says, um, I would like to go do this. And the king's like, by all means, go do it. In fact, I'm going to send a letter with you. So Naaman takes a bunch of silver, and it, it, uh, it's the equivalent of 750 pounds of silver uh, and about 150 pounds of gold along with uh, 10 sets of fabric that would be used, uh, could be used to make um, new clothing. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to kind of do a first stop, second stop uh, so on kind of thing. So this is our first stop. Um, I want you to just notice, even though we've only been uh, able to meet one of the main characters um, who gets named, um, there's a huge contrast in the, in the people we're interacting with. So you have Naaman, this great commander who is also afflicted with leprosy, but has managed to navigate that and become this great commander who is also married. 
He's seen as a great guy. He's a valiant soldier. He's a good commander. And this is affirmed by the, that we know he's done great things in the presence of his master and his king who, uh, uh, who affirms that also. And then we have this unnamed Israelite girl who's been taken captive and is now a servant in Naaman's household. And this unnamed little girl offers to Naaman's wife the information that Naaman so desperately needed but could not on his own get. And that's how to be healed. How often are the deeds and the actions of the great initiated by the unnamed? One of the most amazing things about the kingdom of God is that we are all called to be priests to be a priesthood of believers. There is no voice that is elevated above the others. Sometime after reading this, I want to do a sermon series or a core group on the unnamed voices in the Bible and just see what the unnamed have actually been responsible for initiating or propelling forward and how their participation is just as crucial and valuable as all the wonderful people who have been named. But this young girl is nameless and according to, to, to the world's systems is inconsequential. But she knows what the general does not know but what he needs to know. And then we have Naaman and the Syrian king misunderstanding the girl and they seek to deal with the king of Israel. Now, uh, some scholars tried to say, well, this is just an appropriate channel to work through, right? You just don't want to show up and go find the prophet uh, you want to let the king, the king know. And, and part of that might be true, but the letter that was sent with it didn't say, hey, king of Israel, who noticed the king of Israel is not named either. But king of Israel, here's a letter, and here's my servant I'm sending you. Uh, I'm sending this to you so you can direct him to your prophet and be healed. It says, I'm sending him to you, and you heal him. It seems that sometimes when we have heard advice from someone, maybe we don't see as being uh, super credible or maybe they don't know a lot or um, you know, maybe we look at them as just a child. Um, we bend it to our own leanings, to our own ways of understanding. Here we have two men of power and they don't know about this prophet. Like who is this person? Maybe they're legit, maybe they're not. But they decide it's the king. It's probably the king. The king's got to be the one who can do this. And, and at the very least, the king is the most powerful in terms of our systems of structure. So let's, let's deal with the king. But again, it's not always the people who have the power who can do what needs to be done or even see how to do what needs to be done. Because the king of Israel seems to have issues of his own. Okay, we have a really short interaction um, uh, happening here, but the, the, the king, when uh, Naaman shows up, the king's response is to think that this is a confrontation of some kind, right? Why is this person uh, assuming I can do this? Are they trying to expose me? Are they going to call me out and say, look, this king can't, can't do this, so this king is weak? There's an, an attempt, and, and the king doesn't say, oh, yeah, Elisha, we got this prophet, he can, he can take care of this. The king tears his clothes because it's so still focused on him. 
So it says when Elisha hears about this, then he sends a message. And we have this short interaction between Elisha and the king where Elisha basically says, so stop it, whatever you're doing, and just have the man come to me. And then he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. Now, when Naaman goes to visit Elisha, he shows up with all his horses, his chariots, his silver, his gold, the, the cloth that he brings, his whole entourage is there, and they basically pull up in front of Elisha's house. So it wasn't like they went to his workplace, they, they go to his house. And Elisha sends out a servant. And the servant says, yeah, so go uh, over there to the Jordan River and uh, wash yourself seven times and you'll be clean. You'll be awesome. Um, and, and you can kind of imagine this, this moment, all the kind of circumstance, the pomp and circumstance that is arriving with Naaman and the chariots and the horses and the wealth and the entourage. And then his feeling when Elisha sends a servant out to give the directions on how to be cleansed. And Naaman talks about this. He basically says, I really wanted the prophet to come and see me. I thought surely he would come out to me and, and, and he would call on the name of his God and he would wave his hands over me in the parts of my body that show that I have leprosy and he would cure me. And he goes on and he says, and besides, there are two rivers back home that are way better than any of the rivers in Israel. Couldn't I just wash up and be healed there? And says, so he goes away livid. He doesn't go to the Jordan yet. Again, there's a moment where we have an unnamed servant who comes out and gives the directions for what to do. Well, thankfully, there's another group that is unnamed, um, and those are Naaman's servants. And they bring wisdom to him. They say, hey, if the prophet had told you to go do some great big thing, wouldn't you have done it? So when the prophet says, go over there to the river and bathe in it seven times, like, that's super easy. You, certainly you'll go do this, right? This isn't like a huge deal. And what they're exposing is that it wasn't the huge deal of the location and the geography and the simplicity of it. it there wasn't anything in that that was causing him the, the difficulty. It was that I am a valiant soldier, a commander in King, in the King, uh, King Aram's army, right? I am, I am Naaman. I am all this. And he's being sort of in the space where he has to kind of start letting go of a lot of the things that he thinks about himself, a lot of things he believes about himself, right? I'm in a place where all of a sudden I'm not being recognized as the powerful, good, valiant person that I am, and I don't really like it. I, maybe I've leaned on those things to try to, to bolster up who I am, my own understanding of myself. And now when those things are taken away and I'm faced with the reality that, that I'm just a man and I have this illness that I want to get rid of, I, I'm left in a spot where all I can do is ask. I can't buy it. I can't coerce. 
I can't force. And so he does it. He follows the advice of his servants. And he goes and he washes seven times and it says he becomes clean. And in fact, it says we are told his skin becomes like that of a young boy. And our ears and our hearts should, something should shift at that moment because that word young, it should be in our minds from when we remember back just the beginning of the story, the young girl who initiated this. There's a, 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 a sort of, uh, our author is sort of giving us some insight, right? Starts off with this unnamed young girl who is offering truth and kindness in a situation where she has no, uh, there's no obligation to, there's nothing in her that should, should necessarily facilitate her being kind except for a connection with the Lord. Whether she's acknowledged it or not. But she is kind. And so now we see in Naaman this shift, right? Something has happened. Now, here's the second stop. Have you ever been in a moment like this where you had an idea about the way something should go? It doesn't even have to be something necessarily with God, but it certainly can. And what happened was way less than you expected. And you get a bit angry. Maybe someone didn't treat you the way you thought you should be treated. And it turns out that the thing you wanted that was provided for in a better way than the way you had thought. I remember we had a gentleman, um, it was probably, I don't remember how long ago, probably 10, 15 years at least, um, uh, come, to, come to our church to do a uh, conference. Uh, it was on prayer and the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, I remember we were praying for someone who, who, was, uh, who was ill. Um, and we were praying for them to be healed. And we were, we were praying hard, right? You know, that kind of where you get into it and you're moving and people are up and moving around and laying hands and all kinds of stuff, right? And, and nothing was happening. And so we decided we're going to go get the guy who's leading the conference because he's kind of moving around and talking to different people. And, and I remember thinking, good, we'll go get him and he'll come over and he'll pray and that'll be like the breakthrough, right? That'll be the thing. Like we've been praying hard, almost like we've kind of done all the warm-up work of, of prayer, however that works. doesn't really work that way, but that's how I was thinking. And he'll come up and sort of throw the touchdown, right? And, 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 and he'll kind of push this thing through. And I remember he walked over and he kind of stood with us for maybe like five, six seconds and was like, yeah, kind of feels like everything's being done here that can be done. And I was like, who? What? You're the guy. Like, you're the, you're the one who's saying all this stuff. Come over and do something. And, and I kind of, I didn't say it quite that way, but I, I kind of said, well, we got you right here. And he's like, no, no, you all are just doing fine. Just keep praying. But it was so much less monumental feeling than I had expected it to be, right? I expected it to be like Gandalf riding over the hill on the morning of the fifth day over Helm's Deep, and everything is going to change. And it didn't. And I was mad. I had to let go of some things. Naaman in this situation has to let go of all the things that he has been, except that he's a human being 
and he has leprosy. It's not uncommon in scripture or in life where this, there's this process we need to go through um, in order to learn and experience what it is that God is intending uh, for us. There are things we have to work through. There are things we have to deal with. And sometimes it, it takes a lot of work. And sometimes it's not comfortable. Right? I think we had a word come to us this morning that was about that. And in the last song we sang, it's all because of, of Jesus, I'm alive. And then the word was, yes, that's true. And we can celebrate that. But there's more. Right? If you are alive and then you just sit and can't, then it's, it's different. But if you're alive, then get up and do something. Like go, move, endure, navigate. Do all the things you need to do. Right? And so Naaman is in that spot. And again, I just want to highlight that there are kind of unnamed people, this group of servants, um, who not only are they unnamed, but they're not in necessarily the, the power positions. But they're the ones who bring uh, the wisdom. And again, we see that it's, it's information and wisdom that, that Naaman really needed. Uh, but he himself alone was not able to access. And so the story so far has been fairly simple. We have a man, a great man, who has leprosy. He goes to receive a healing. Um, there are some delays due to some misunderstandings, and there's some resistance uh, due to uh, some misperceptions. Um, but neither the misunderstandings or the resistance uh, can stop the, the will of God, it seems, because he's healed. And he says, Naaman now says, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. There's something new. There's a rebirth. There's a transformation. It's not just that he has new skin, but he has become a new person. And then it's not after all that happens that Naaman and Elijah actually, Elisha actually meet. And again, his attitude is totally different. Right? He could have said, hey, I'm glad I'm healed, but hey, you really disrespected me back there by not showing up. That's not even in, the, in, the, in his presence anymore. That is all, it's all gratitude now claims that the God of Israel is the God of all the world. He wants to give payment. Elijah says no, right? There, there's this sense in him maybe like, yeah, I'll give you payment. I, and, and Elijah's like, no, there, I don't want any ties to you being able to in any way sort of think that this was because of you. Your status, your money, all of that. And then Naaman has this interesting moment. He's like, okay, if you won't, if you won't take my money, then, then, then just, you know, help me with this because I got to go back. And, I, and, and Lord, forgive me when I go back and I'm with the king and I got to bow to our gods there and the king's going to be leaning on me to do so. so. So please, Lord, forgive me when I do that. And Elijah says, yeah, go in peace. Doesn't, you know, give him a big presentation. Doesn't, he just says, yeah, no, you're good. And what we leave with at this point is it is clear that God has been involved in the nations. Right? He's been involved in Naaman's life. That God will not be safely contained to Israel. And then we have the introduction of the third character. So we've met Naaman and we've met uh, Elisha and now we have Gehazi. And Gehazi 
uh, had uh, probably observed what had happened, or at least became aware of what had happened with Naaman. Um, and uh, there's this interesting, the way it's phrased, it says at, in uh, verse 20, uh, the, the end of 19 and verse 20, it says, After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, um, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something for him. And that, that phrase at the end there, get something, um, is really, it's, that sounds like, he might go up and sneak a little bit, or he might go up and try to bargain. And this is like, the idea is I'm, I'm, I'm taking something from him. I'm taking something that's not mine, and uh, it's, it's not even a belief so much that it's like, oh, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's much more aggressive than it comes across. Um, this sounds like it's kind of a passing thought. This is, it's, there's a real aggression to it. Um, so, uh, with that, though, um, uh, he goes and, and then just starts lying, right? Just straight up, like, oh, hey, and, and Gehazi, like, gets off his chariot to go meet him. I mean, just think about this again, right? Uh, uh, sorry, Naaman. Naaman is the, the general, the commander. Why would he need to get off his chariot to go meet a servant? Right? But look at the change that has taken place in him. He, he comes down off his chariot and greets, is everything okay? He says, yeah, yeah, everything's okay, but you know, um, Elisha, a couple of prophets just got back, and so if you could give them a shekel each uh, of silver and, and a set of the cloth, that, that would be great to help us out, right? Uh, and it's significantly less than all that Naaman brought, but he's totally generous, says absolutely, like take it. Uh, and so now we have contrasted Naaman's generosity with, with all the stuff he originally brought and then still giving exactly what was asked for and Gehazi's sort of greed um, and, and, and covetousness, right? He's wanting something, and he's now taking something, and he's lying about it. And it works really well. He gets it. He's able to take it, put it in his home. But then he encounters Elisha, and Elisha... Uh, and I wrestle with this because sometimes I have problems when people ask questions they already know the answers to. Um, especially in these ways, it feels like a bit of a trap. Um, but that's how it plays itself out. And Elisha asks him, so basically, what have you been up to? Where have you been? And, uh, and Gehazi says, well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't been anywhere. What do you mean? And, and then Elisha says, no, no. It wasn't my spirit with you when the man got off his chariot. Like, what, what are you thinking? Like, that I wouldn't know about this. And then what we have is, um, it's a complete reversal uh, and, a, and a transformation of, of characters um, that because of his greed and because of his covetousness um, that has been so destructive here, um, he now receives Naaman's leprosy. Like Elijah says, it's basically like you two have kind of switched places. Um, and, and the thing that I find so, so interesting here is that, so Naaman now became the servant who had the words who had the wisdom. If, if Gehazi would have stood and listened to Naaman say, 
there's no other God except for the God of Israel. Maybe he would have changed in his heart. Maybe he would have received what he needed to say, oh man, I really don't think I want to take something, uh, but I can't. This is the, the God of Israel that I serve. I can't do that. And he doesn't. And so Elijah says, now your spot is, is Naaman's previous spot. So I want to I kind of wrap up. Um, and there are um, just a couple of things I want to review, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. Um, this stuff about um, the unnamed or the maybe not the, the major power players um, having sort of the wisdom, having the message. They, they initiate things. It is a theme throughout Scripture. Right? It is the way we often find God working um, in, in our world. Um, this girl is a prisoner of war, um, and yet even there it seems she is not forgotten or given up on um, uh, her, her faith, her connection to God, uh, her kindness. Um, we see that Naaman becomes like her, right? That, that identi- identifying characteristic of being a young girl, and he becomes like a young boy. And it, it harkens back to her and her kindness and her truth speaking. And now Naaman becomes that very thing, generous and speaking truth. And then we have the counter-narrative in this, the, the, the movement of Gehazi. And again, that, that moment of, I'm going to go take something from him. It, it's, it's expressed in, yeah, I'm going to take a couple shekels, but it's really meant like, I am going to take from you. I'm going to steal from you. I'm going to take part of you because you had something that I want that I didn't get. And in all of this, there's, there's opportunities to overcome. And if we look at um, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, it says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Walter Brueggemann, in uh, his commentary on this, says, um, overcoming of such conduct that is talked about in this passage, including greed, and I love this, is the overcoming of all social divisions, uh, no matter how wide the gap. When we overcome these things, we break down walls. When we overcome these things, we, we bridge gaps and we bring people together. Um, and that's what God is trying to do in this world, is to bring us together, to heal us, to cleanse us, right? But sometimes 
Um, we just don't hear it because of our own space and our own how we think of ourselves and how we think of the person we're hearing it from. And so as I close, I, have a, just, I just have two questions, um, and I didn't, I didn't type them in. I just want you to hear and sit on these, uh, think on them, um, wrestle around with them uh, for the next couple of minutes, and then if you want to write them down or something, you can. They'll probably be in the chat, um, and then Brian's going to close us with a song. But... Um, so I, I just want you to take note for a minute. Who are the people that are around you? Maybe not physically, but maybe through social media. Maybe some physically, but uh, certainly through social media, through news. Who are the people that you somehow in any way, shape, or form are engaging with? And are there any of those people who you have either distanced yourself from or you just know in your heart, I don't really listen to them because... Right? And you can fill in the blank. Maybe you don't feel like they have anything to say to you. Maybe um, you, know, you just feel like you know more than they do. Right? Or maybe you feel like they're, too, they're different from you. And so it is hard. You know, whatever the reason is. Um, and then I want you, this is the kind of, the, is, there, is there something there in that that God might be inviting you to? Can we come into a space where we're listening for Jesus in every single person we meet? Right? And, and one of my greatest examples of this happened with my youngest daughter, Mariella, who we were talking about um, uh, why we moved out of our old neighborhood to our new neighborhood. And, uh, and we were talking through some kind of rough stuff with that. And so I said, well, you know, we moved to be more in the neighborhood and this kind of stuff. And she kept pushing. And I remember saying, and in my heart, I said, okay, I'm going to play this card. It's the God card. So it's going to be tough for you because you're going to have to, you know, it's kind of the, end, the ending card. And so I said, well, we really moved because God told us to move. And she said, no, God told you to move. God didn't tell me to move. I didn't hear anything from God, right? And it really shocked me. And it really, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't ask for your, <laughs> I mean, we talked about it as a family, but I didn't ask, right? And so the lesson I learned out of that straight, out of that conversation is that the vision God gave me may not be the vision that he gives everyone in my family, right? And now I'm learning how to let my, my kids' vision and what God has given them grow and flourish and not making it mine. Right? And so it's just, to me, it's a great example of how to listen um, with, some, with, with people who may be in that situation. I thought I was the one who was controlling because I'm the pastor. I've done all the reading and the studying and the praying and the blah, blah, blah. Right? So maybe there's someone in your life who has something that, from Jesus for you. Uh, so just be attentive. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll move on. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for your presence in our lives, God. And, and I give you great thanks that even when we're so stubborn or we're so self-centered, we're so just self-focused, that you still, you bring people to us, right? And you, you bring us to other people, right? It, it goes both ways, that we get to speak for you and we get to hear from you. Right? So I pray, Lord, we would be open to doing that. I pray that the hard places in our world right now, right, the, the divides that have been uh, that are in place, God, that many of us just think are, are too big. And we've said to people, I don't, I don't have anything to hear from you. I, I have nothing to say to you. And I pray you would help us to bridge those gaps. I pray the divides that have been caused because of our own actions that have caused pain to other people, whether we're aware of it or not. God, I pray you would find a way for us to be able to, to go back in and not to speak into those situations, but be able to listen. God, how can we hear 
from the other people that we've created distance from or the distance has been created, whatever the case, God, I pray you'd help us and do, help us to be creative and imaginative and do the hard work of, um, of reconciling, of, of bringing back together, of engaging, of initiating. Help us to be um, the unnamed people who speak truth and wisdom, not for our sake, but for the sake of others. Uh, yeah, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.